We interrupt this broadcast with some important news. Let's rewind and check out the biggest news stories from this week. It's time, it's time for Taiwan This Week. Good evening and welcome to Taiwan This Week with me, your host, Gavin Phipps. And I'm joined in the studio today by Ross Feingold. And we'll be speaking to ICRT's Taijong correspondent, Donovan Smith, and our Kaohsiung correspondent, Michael Smith, later in the show as we discuss some of the stories from here in Taiwan this year that stuck around throughout much of the year, whether people liked it or not. But we'll begin with the national stories from this year here in Taiwan, and we have to begin with the Qingfu shipbuilding scandal that went simply from a default on a syndicated bank loan to virtually a full-blown political mess overnight, with both the current Tsai administration being dragged in, the previous Ma administration being dragged in, and of course, Ross, the Qingfu shipbuilding company, there was even questions about this company during the Chen administration. Well, it's important that you put this story first at the top of the national news, because nothing is more important than Taiwan's national security. An important component of that is building an indigenous national defense uh, manufacturing capability. This minesweeping contract was an important part of that. As you noted, this contract has spanned across several administrations. The CEO's relationship spans across uh, several administrations up to the presidential level, um, specifically with the Chen administration, as you mentioned, and now with the Tsai administration, because he is known as being more friendly to the DPP than the KMT. That being said, the contract was awarded under the Ma administration. This really says a lot about not just the state of uh, national defense, but also the potential to manufacture defense equipment here locally, armaments and and other types of uh, more uh, larger projects like ships. Uh, It says a lot about government procurement processes. It says a lot about U.S.-Taiwan relations because some of the equipment that was to go in the minesweepers was to be sourced from the United States. It also says a lot about Taiwan's relations with the European Union because part of these ships were manufactured or to be manufactured in Italy. This story is far from over. So when you said in the introduction that uh, we're going to talk about stories that stick around, this is one that's going to stick around through most of 2018 as well. And frankly, it might even factor in the 2020 national election as well, given the size of this scandal and the importance for Taiwan's defense. And of course, it not open up questions about Taiwan's defense, but it also opens some questions about Taiwan's financial capabilities or its financial institutes and their way to loan companies money. Well, that's a corporate governance question. So it's a, it's a basic issue of did the banks do proper uh, due diligence? Were they monitoring the corporate governance procedures at the borrower, in this case, Qingfu Company? Uh, and clearly, there were shortcomings. We've seen that before with other large lending scandals here in Taiwan. Uh, not long ago, there was a scandal involving the Sinopac Uh, financial institution and the associated manufacturing companies of the family that controls Sinopac. Uh, So these kinds of situations are not unusual. What is unfortunate is that it recurs. And we see that sometimes it's pressure from a controlling shareholder to make loans without proper due diligence or corporate governance procedures. Or in this case, it seems that there was pressure to release the funding to Qingfu by politicians, by elected officials or political appointees. Uh, whether it's in the Ma administration or the Tsai administration, 
that is also extremely problematic. And again, the scandal will continue to unfold as we get into 2018. It's definitely not just a 2017 story. Right. I mean, do you think the government, is in, as in the administrations, are to blame, the financial sector is to blame, or the defense ministry is to blame, or a combination of all three led to this sort of explosion? It, it's definitely a combination. So although the defense ministry have lots of experience purchasing uh, defense equipment, whether it's ships or or missiles, aircraft, aircraft uh, equipment. Uh, they have a lot of experience making very large dollar value purchases, um, usually from the United States. Uh, but the experience with purchasing locally uh, more recently is less. The, the experience with building something anew, um, almost from scratch, as we would say in English, is, is something that uh, the MND might lack expertise in, and we see that playing out. That being said, uh, we see the political uh, frankly, interference, uh, pressuring the financial institutions to release funding. Uh, we see that Ching Fu repeatedly went to politicians to obtain that kind of assistance. And we see the financial institutions caving into pressure from government officials, from politicians to release the funds when maybe the financial institutions should have done more due diligence. They should have known better. But these being, in some cases, state-owned financial institutions, they don't have a choice when the politicians politicians say, you should release the money now to the borrower who is building something that is important for the country's national defense. So as you indicated, Gavin, it's a circle here where, where they are all on the same circle running together to try and get this project to proceed. But unfortunately, at the very back end of this, uh, the company wasn't really building the ships. And they were asking for the money to be released using falsified documentation with regard to whether some of the equipment had been uh, approved for export from the United States, equipment that would be incorporated into the ship's electronics and, and other aspects of the ship's capabilities. Uh, so it is a circle. It's a vicious circle. Some might say it's a spiral. And uh, it's unfortunate. Fortunate. Let's hope that the justice system conducts an appropriate investigation. And if people did violate the law, that they will be prosecuted. And I'm sure we'll hear more about that in the coming months, possibly years, as you said. Anyway, let's move on. And of course, the arrest and conviction of Taiwan human rights advocate Li Mingzhi in China was another one of those stories that filled newspaper front pages here. But of course, it also filled newspaper pages globally. Li was, of course, arrested in March by Chinese authorities, and he was sentenced to five years in prison on charges of subverting state power in late November. Now, of course, since he was arrested, since the moment of his arrest in March, of course, people here were screaming blue murder. He should, people here were, he should be released by Chinese authorities. That, unfortunately, Ross, was probably never going to happen. That's right. Once uh, someone is arrested on these kinds of charges, it's unusual uh, for the Chinese authorities, whether it's one of their own nationals, a Taiwan national, foreigners from other countries. It would be unusual for the, Ta for the Chinese authorities to say, oh, we made a mistake. This person really was not involved in activities that we find troublesome. And, and obviously, the Chinese authorities do not like the foreigners, whether from Taiwan, Europe, the United States, coming to China and instigating or helping people learn about what we consider to be their normal uh, human rights. Uh, it is a, a dreadful, dreadful aspect of the Chinese administration, but this is what they do. So you know, we still don't know exactly why Mr. Li went to China to do this. Uh, was he just genuinely interested in the cause of human rights and democracy development in China? Was he working with other 
uh, NGOs here in Taiwan. We know he was associated with a, a community college, and he previously had worked for the DPP. Uh, but what exactly his motivations were, other than personal interest, we, we still don't really know. But regardless, uh, once he was arrested, and clearly he had been on uh, notice, uh, that at least the Chinese authorities have been monitoring him. Whether or not he knew that is also unclear. Uh, but, but the Chinese authorities were monitoring his communications with dissidents in China, and that made him you know, liable to, to arrest once he entered China to meet with uh, people that he was providing uh, materials and having discussions uh, on human rights and democracy development issues. Uh, th there has been, as you noted, international interest in this case. I think it's going to dissipate because that tends to happen with many Chinese dissidents, uh, let alone a, a foreigner dissident or a foreign person who's been arrested, which is the situation here with Mr. Li, because he's not not from Chinese, from Taiwan. Uh, so interest might dissipate. Uh, it's incumbent upon his wife to keep it in the news. Uh, but with the lack of communication between Taiwan and China, it's kind of hard to see what more could be done uh, other than appealing to the goodwill of China to allow Mr. Lee out early. Well, if you put your legal hat on as a lawyer, he was obviously sentenced to five years. Do you think this was stiff, not stiff enough for Chinese purposes, we'll say? Or do you think he could be let out early? Well, it's broadly consistent with the kinds of sentences that are handed out for Chinese dissidents engaging in similar activities. Uh, the, the more harsh sentence, the ones that get into closer to 10 or more years, are usually involving large-scale campaigns, so whether internet campaign, uh, public activities. And that, that was not what Mr. Li was doing. Uh, uh, the Chinese would say we were simply following our criminal code, and his jail sentence was uh, issued in accordance with, with laws. It's not something that was made up uh, ad hoc by the judges. Uh, of course, uh, we know that the Communist Party dictates to the judges what jail sentences will be when it's a politically sensitive case. Uh, the, the one possible face-saving way out for the Chinese authorities would be a type of medical parole, which uh, China sometimes does hand uh, out or, or allow uh, dissidents to leave prison early, especially if they are in need of medical care and, and want to go overseas for that medical care. Uh, since this kind of case involving a person from Taiwan and these charges is unprecedented. Uh, it remains to be seen whether or not China will be willing to give him a medical parole, but his wife has indicated that he does suffer from a variety of illnesses. So that might be a basis for a medical parole, but uh, a little bit too early, I would say, because his jail sentence was only just handed down in November, as you mentioned. And we don't know where he is apparently at the moment. Well, then we get into a debate about whether or not China is following the uh, cross-straits judicial agreement. Uh, there's been a lot of misinterpretation of this agreement about what the obligations of either side is, uh, which has not helped the situation, in my opinion. This agreement was meant uh, more to be an agreement to an agree, like a lot of cross-strait agreements. Uh, it really wasn't meant to lock in uh, some of the reporting requirements about detention and things like that, that people here in Taiwan have uh, mistakenly accused the China side of, of violating. I don't say that to defend the Chinese side, definitely not. Uh, but, but the agreement is not a very strong agreement. And, and that was 
kind of the purpose it was really was meant to be a, a first step to having communications on on detentions uh, but but uh, given the early days of government to government communication when this agreement was signed during the Ma administration I think both sides had a goal at the time of not having the most robust notification requirements incorporated into the agreement it was probably anticipated that's something that could come at a later stage which is uh, by analogy what Hong Kong has been doing they had earlier agreements but then when they found out those agreements didn't really work they've subsequently signed later agreements on notifications about detentions anyway uh, the, the notifications of, of where people are or how long they've been detained and things like that uh, yes the Taiwan side would certainly want more but uh, there really isn't much they can do Right. Now, third national story that hung around like, well, it hung around like an amendment because it was an amendment to an amendment to an amendment to an amendment. And these amendments kept going all year. This is, of course, the amendments to the Labour Rights Act, which, of course, were amended last year, but then were amended this year again. And does anybody really know what's going on here, Ross? Very difficult to say. And when you say everyone or anyone, uh, that that is the full scope of stakeholders on this issue, starting with the presidential office, which uh, really had the leadership in crafting the changes to the law, then the legislative uh, UN, which has a DPP majority, which passed the changes to the laws, uh, the Ministry of Labor, which reports to the premier, which uh, initially was Lin Chuan and now is William Lai Qingde, uh, employers and employees, and employees could be unionized as well as non-unionized. And then ultimately, uh, the consumers, people like us, who sometimes suffer when uh, we're not able to obtain services due to uh, what some would say onerous requirements that restrict employers from deploying a sufficient number of employee resources because the employees have would violate the law by working too many hours even if the employees want to earn some overtime. So there, there is almost nobody who has been untouched by this law but uh, or the changes to the law. But as you indicated, most of us are confused by what the changes are because the changes imposed uh, very elaborate restrictions on how many hours employees could work. But it was written in a way that we now know was all-encompassing. So even if the intentions were good, uh, maybe the people who would have benefited most from these protections might have been assembly line workers, blue-collar workers, uh, but it turned out to impact everyone from white-collar workers to uh, maybe radio hosts like you, Gavin, and, and your colleagues here at ICRT, uh, drivers, and, and yes, of course, uh, we, we know there are road accidents when drivers work too many hours, but there were probably were other laws that should have been enforced to cover something like that. Instead, we have this all-encompassing changes to the labor law, and and the majority of stakeholders were unhappy about this, to the point where, uh, some of the listeners may recall, when people gave this feedback, uh, reporters asked President Tsai about this, she famously said, well, why don't you, you being employers and employees, uh, capital and labor, you guys go figure it out yourselves. So she kind of threw her hands up in the air and said, I can't deal with this anymore. You guys go figure it out. You go read the law. That did not go down well with all the stakeholders because there was so much confusion about this law and, and dissatisfaction with the law. And thus, the result was the government has had to draft as you said, changes to the changes, amendments to the amendments, and now the stakeholders uh, in the political uh, political sphere, the uh, legislative UN, the executive UN, the Ministry of Labor are negotiating revisions to the revisions. And hopefully in 2018, this issue will settle. Uh, but it has 
left a, a very negative mark on the efficiency of the Thai administration. Right, and there's the national stories that hung around this year. Now let's look at Taipei. Well, of course, we have to begin with Taipei's university ad, of course. We, we've been hearing about this for a long time. We heard about this when Taipei first was given the award to host the event. We heard about it all at the beginning of the year. We heard about it all through the summer, of course. And then we heard about it even more after the event when we heard that Kerwinger's support rating had gone up because he hosted the university ad, which was hailed as a great success. Well, we have to take a step back. So as you indicated, we've been hearing about this for many years, and the bid was won under the previous mayor, uh, uh, Hao Longbing, and he seemed to have an affinity for these kinds of large-scale international events because uh, under his leadership, Taipei hosted the Deaf Olympics and then subsequently hosted the uh, Floral Expo. Uh, these events cost a lot of money. Uh, generally, uh, those earlier two events were considered to have gone off well, so people who attended uh, overseas visitors or local attendees had a good impression of the facilities and of the events. America, as a candidate and in his initial period uh, of, of his mayorship, uh, after he was sworn in at the end of 2014, didn't seem too excited about the administrative burdens as well as the cost that came with organizing this event. I think, to his credit, over time, as the event got closer and closer, uh, he warmed up to it considerably, and he became a very enthusiastic supporter of the university games. Uh, there was always the naysayers who said the facilities wouldn't be built on time, uh, the athlete's village, the residential village wouldn't be finished on time, things like that. I think most of those challenges were overcome by the time the event started. There was there was a, a very uh, unfortunate incident with protesters uh, outside the opening ceremony. But after that, the rest of the opening ceremony, the 10 days of the games, I think we could all agree that it went very well. There was uh, you know, very, very successful outcomes for the Taiwan athletes, so that helps uh, generate national interest here in Taiwan. Uh, so the games went well, but now we're dealing with the post-games period. And even just in the last few days, there's a controversy around the swimming pool that was constructed for the university games, constructed by the organizing committee, which was part of the Taipei City government. This swimming pool happens to be situated in Taoyuan, and the agreement between the city governments of Taipei and Taoyuan was to return this or to give the swimming pool to the Taoyuan city government. And now we see the Taoyuan city government saying, no, no, we don't want it. The reason they don't want it is there's a lot of maintenance costs that go with maintaining this excellent swimming pool that was built for the games. I think there's going to be some more stories like this coming out. And, and you know, the risk for Ko Wenzhe is you know, he could say we had a great university games. The risk when he's running for, for re-election later this year. He could say we had a great university games. Uh, but, but now we have the post period and, and the cost. And uh, he does have some political risk in the aftermath of the games. He cannot simply bask in the 10 days were great. That's not going to be enough for him to get reelected. Because that's, of course, come up as well. People have been saying that he, he's got over 50 percent support rating Going into this year, of course, 2018, we've got national elections at the end of the year and the local national elections, rather, with mayor and county commissioner heads. And do you think the university will still be in voters' minds? Uh, it could be in university. Sorry, it could be in the voter minds if America's opponents say, well, look at the cost. You went over budget or you said you would uh, be able to pass these facilities on to local governments in neighboring jurisdictions like the swimming pool in Taiwan, but now they don't want it. So the Taipei city taxpayers are going to be stuck with the bill for this. And, and these facilities are very difficult to maintain, especially if you don't have a sufficient number of users. But let's think about this. How could the Taipei city government maintain a swimming pool in Taiwan? I mean, the logic there is is, is kind of hard to understand. So, 
there is definitely some political risk for America if he's going to be talking about the university games and or his opponents might be pointing these things out as well as we get into we continue to uh, get into the post games period and we get more information about the financials what assets i.e. buildings facilities swimming pools etc are, are still in the city government's hands and what are they going to do with them and of course his opponents is the big question as we head into the election year is well, the is the DPP going to back him is the DPP going to have their own candidate and what are the KMT going to do well th- this is something the DPP struggled with four years ago so they did have a primary it was very competitive some very well-known politicians, uh, people who had run for various offices uh, before, uh, both in Taipei or in the legislative UN, uh, who had served in previous DPP administrations, uh, they they ran in a very heated primary. And eventually the DPP kind of folded. They, they said, well, Mariko and Joe seems to ha- have some popularity. He seems to have struck a chord w- with the voters. The KMT candidates were looking very weak. And uh, ultimately, Cohen Joe was seen ideologically as close to DPP beliefs anyway. So the DPP gave up and they said, well, all right, we'll just we'll just support Cohen Zhe. So we're back in the same conversation, though. Uh, so it looks like there will be DPP candidates. It will force DPP headquarters to allow a primary to proceed. Uh, whether or not the DPP will ultimately support its own candidate is up to President Tsai, since she is the chairwoman of the DPP. Uh, unfortunately, she has not revealed what her ultimate decision is going to be. But it looks increasingly likely that there will be a DPP primary, and there will be somebody from the DPP saying, I am the legitimate candidate of this party. I expect the party to support me. On the KMT side, very similar to four years ago, as well as similar to the DPP, there will be several candidates uh, fighting in a primary. Whether or not they're able to capture the interest of the voters remains to be seen. It didn't happen last time after a bruising primary. If they have a bruising primary this time, the candidate might emerge very weak and and not having a vision. Uh, That was one of their problems four years ago. The the candidate needs to have a vision. Incumbency is is very powerful. Uh, America might run on not just the university games, but other things he's done uh, for traffic, quality of life. Uh, So he he might say, I deserve another four years, and it'll be up to the KMT candidate to present an alternative vision. We haven't seen that yet from any of the announced KMT candidates. Right, and finally in Taipei, we had, of course, we had Uber... This, let's call that Uber last year, although Uber was scrapped this year. But, of course, the other big transport issue in the city was the O-Bike. Who would have known that bicycle rental systems could cause such a stink? Well, that that is what happens with the, with the new economy companies and ideas. They disintermediate. Now, the problem with Uber was disintermediating the traditional taxi operators and, and, and the drivers. The problem with O-Bike was it was disintermediating a bike service run by the city government. So, of course, the city government, as opposed to a, a third-party private company, uh, was going to be pretty upset with this. You know, the beauty of O-Bike was you could uh, access a bike and leave the bike pretty much wherever you want. Whereas with the U-Bike, as the listeners know, you have to go to the U-Bike station to obtain the bike, and you have to return it to the U-Bike station, which means you need to be near a U-Bike station, both uh, from your departure point and your arrival point. O-Bike had a better idea, and U-Bike was then struggling with that. So what does the government do? They find a reason to say, O-Bike, you're violating a whole bunch of regulations. We are going to ban you. Um, you know, Those of us who support free market uh, uh, concepts, 
Uh, although we don't like uh, people who are able to profit by uh, violating laws or uh, using public facilities without paying for it, which arguably sometimes some of these uh, services do. Uh, but Obike had a great idea, and it really made Ubike's service seem antiquated, even though Ubike is but five years old. Uh, so that that was probably why Obike ran into some political headwinds right away, because it was taking on a antiquated and government-owned service. But clearly, the public uh, enjoys the flexibility of being able to access a bike uh, wherever they see one and to return it uh, basically wherever you arrive as opposed to going to the U-Bike stations. And you still see them on the streets everywhere. And of course, the Taipei MRT Airport line opened from Taipei City to Taoyuan Airport to much great fanfare and, well, Ross Knotts altogether good, though, apparently. Moving to the MRT station is a bit of a chore. It certainly is. So the, the, the airport MRT works best for people who live close to an MRT station that is not too many stops away from where the airport uh, MRT terminal is located, which is halfway between the Baymen and the Taipei train station, MRT stations. There are underground passages. takes about 10 minutes. So depending on your starting point in Taipei, it might work for you. It might not work for you. Uh, the ride is about 37 minutes from the, air, from the terminal station in downtown Taipei to airport uh, terminal two. Uh, that is not faster than taking a vehicle, uh, a car service, if there is no traffic. Uh, plus, uh, you have to add in the time it takes to get to the airport MRT terminal station from your starting point in Taipei, uh, which again would pretty much equate uh, taking a door-to-door car service from from your home if you're in the downtown Taipei or uh, the, the suburban areas like, like a Yonghe, Zhonghe in the south or a Tianmu, Beitou in the north uh, of downtown Taipei. So there is not a significant time saving. There is a significant inconvenience cost to using this service. So it works for some people. It doesn't work for a lot of people, frankly. Uh, for the cost saving, it might not be worth it for some people. If you're cost conscious, then 160 Taiwan dollars to go from downtown to the airport is certainly cheaper than a car service, which usually costs 900 to 1,000 NT. The trains are like commuter trains. Uh, it's not like a fancy airport express that we see in some other cities around the world, such as Hong Kong. So it's not quite as comfortable as that. It took a lot longer to be built than, or to open uh, than, than anticipated. And I'll, I'll leave, you, leave this conversation with one more aspect, which unfortunately is a negative. The Luggage check-in service, the in-town check-in service still needs a lot of improvement. The cutoff time is three hours before departure. By comparison, Hong Kong is 90 minutes. As of now, only two airlines are offering this service, China Airlines and EVA. Uh, So if you're not flying on those two airlines, you still have to take your luggage with you on the train to the airport. And that's where we'll leave it now after doing the national news and the Taipei news for the year. And we'll take a short break. We'll be right back after these important messages. Welcome back to Taiwan This Week, and we're going to hear now from ICRT's Central Taiwan correspondent, Donovan Smith, about some of the stories that stuck around in his neck of the woods this year. So good evening, Donovan. And good evening, Gavin. So we're covering stories that hung around this year in Taiwan. And, of course, the big story in your area is pollution hanging around. Yeah, very much so. 
Uh, Central Taiwan a few years ago passed up the uh, Kaohsiung Pingdong area as the uh, center for air pollution in Taiwan. So it's uh, become quite an issue here. Right. But of course, Merlin Jialong, obviously, of course, last year he tried to help clean up the air. But this year, later in the year, he had a bit of luck because the central government finally decided to get on board. Yeah, actually, uh, Central Taiwan in general, uh, all the Central Taiwan governments, and also going further south into Yunlin, uh, local governments have been trying to tackle air pollution locally. Uh, But of course, up in Taipei, they could care less, is is, is the impression that we get down here. Uh, Obviously, much of the air pollution doesn't reach Taipei to the degree that it does down here. And much of the power generated for Taipei is is generated down here. Uh, one of the big stories, of course, is Wei Mingu, the um, Zhanghua County Commissioner, uh, took a crack at um, the uh, Formosa Plastics Group subsidiary, Formosa Fiber and Chemical, uh, which has a huge complex right in downtown uh, Zhanghua City. They have a bunch of uh, coal-fired burners uh, or generators there right downtown. Uh, tried to shut them down last year. Uh, they were formally overruled this year. He took another crack at them, uh, tried to find them out of existence this November. Uh, and again, the central government uh, shut them down, uh, totally overruled them. Now, Lin Jialong uh, and... Um, uh, he had the mayor here in Taichung and, of course, Wei Mingu and Zhang Hua uh, have been doing quite a bit. But the problem is, is that the major targets, including the Formosa Plastics Group complex and uh, here in Taichung, the Taichung Power Plant, which is the uh, up until earlier this year was the world's largest coal-fired power plant uh, and apparently is still the world's largest emitter of carbon dioxide. And according to some reports, is the, uh, it, it emits as much carbon dioxide as the entire country of Switzerland. Uh, it, 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 puts in, it puts out something along the lines of 80 to 90 percent of all the um, uh, air pollution in, uh, from industrial sources in uh, central Taiwan, uh, or at least Taichung. Uh, so this was a major target. Uh, Lin Jialong had been going after that. And up until very late November this year, they got no traction. Uh, now, the um, and that was a major change. I, I believe we'll be getting into the politics in a little bit, and then we'll go into that more. But uh, up until this point, he'd only really been able to tinker at the margins, things like more electric buses, pushing public transportation, uh, pushing... Uh, uh, small power generators from you know small factories to move to natural gas, but it wasn't really making a whole lot of headway in the air. And as far as the public was concerned, in spite of government uh, issuing a lot of uh, figures saying that the air pollution was coming down, as far as the public perception was concerned, the, it was not coming down at all. And so it's become a dominant issue in a way that I haven't seen an issue dominate the local press in, in, ever. Right, of course, it's quite ironic, of course, central Taiwan is considered the green energy bastion of the island. Yeah, I mean, the, uh, you know, the, the, the government up in Taipei, they've been talking about air pollution, but really kind of in a vague pie-in-the-sky future sort of thing, because most of their plans were long-term. Now, a lot of this is centered around Zhanghua. Uh, the coast right off of Zhanghua happens to be a almost ideal place, uh, according to the experts, for offshore wind. 
the uh, the seabed is, is relatively shallow. Uh, there's high winds and fairly regular winds, and so uh, there's now, and this is quite stunning. There is uh, two trillion NT dollars in MOUs already out there right now for offshore wind contracts off of the coast of Zhanghuan, a little bit off of uh, Taichung. Now, this is, I mean, that's pretty massive. Now, the, the Zhanghuan County Commissioner Wei Mingu has been touting, uh, he's been touting Zhanghua as the Saudi Arabia of wind and renewable energies. Right, and of course, politics hasn't been far behind all this pollution and calls for green energy, as with the elections coming up in 2018. It's playing a bit of a role in who could win and who could lose. Yeah, now this is this is what's really striking uh, is that the local the local news, as I mentioned a moment ago, has been just totally dominated by this pollution issue. And what happened was, in, in spite of uh, the mayor and even the previous mayor, they had been tackling air pollution. But they, the giant elephant in the room, of course, the Taijun power plant. Um, that the Formosa Plastics Group uh, complex in Zhanghua City and the massive uh, uh, complex at Mairiao in Yunlin. And they were not able to tackle them because central government kept repeatedly overruling the local governments and, and any attempts to try and uh, deal with those, those emitters. So they've been more concentrating on two-stroke scooters and things like that. Now, what happened is, in, as I mentioned a little bit earlier, is that, you know, Zhanghua took another crack at the Formosa Plastics Group in, in downtown Zhanghua. But <clears throat> what, re what happened is, over the last few months, is when the KMT started launching their, uh, there's two major candidates for mayor of Taichung City, uh, Jiang Jitan and um, Liu Xiuyan. And both of them, once they launched their campaigns a little bit earlier in the fall, started slamming uh, Taichung Mayor Lin Jialong on the pollution issue. And they were pounding and pounding and pounding. And now Taichung has become the second largest city. Uh, so it's, become, it's a major political center. It's uh, you know, a major political prize. And in the last election, the last local elections, Taichung has become, and central Taiwan in general, moved from generally being pan-blue to being pan-green. And this was quite an achievement for the DPP. Now, what happened is, is that polls showed that by November, the gap between the two presumptive KMT candidates who are still running a primary versus Taichung Mayor Lin Jialong had narrowed down to about three, two, three, four, five percentage points meaning that we, you had a powerful incumbent in an area that had shifted to pan-green, but they were in serious danger of losing central Taiwan, and that was a real wake-up call for Taipei. But it was apparently Lin now has made some progress in the polls over the KMT. Well, yeah, basically uh, the DPP up in Taipei, the, you know, the central government, the Thai administration, I think they realized that they were about to lose they were in serious danger of losing Taichung. I mean, when you have a powerful incumbent in, in the second largest city in the country and is already, even before any serious campaigning had started within very narrow single digits uh, in the opinion polls, I think that was a major wake-up call. So what happened is, is that very late in November, uh, when Lin, Lin Jialong took another crack at the Taichung power plant, and he announced, uh, he came to an agreement with them, and of course the state-owned uh, Thai Power runs it, 
that they were going to bring down uh, coal usage or coal burning in the in the power plant from 21 million tons to 16 million tons. Now, in practice, really, that's the amount allowed, 21 million tons. In practice, they were burning a little bit under 18, but it was still a significant. Uh, it's the very first time that there has been any significant step back or any attempt to rein in Thai power at that power plant. So it was uh, it was kind of a major achievement. And uh, and then now the wind is pretty much in Lin Jalong's back. And suddenly in the last poll, he was up over, uh, he was heading on 15 points ahead of his challenger, his, his closest challenger in the polls, uh, an over 10-point jump right from that alone. And before we go this evening... ICRT's Kaohsiung correspondent Michael Smith explains the big stories, well, out of Kaohsiung this year. So, of course, Michael, pollution loomed large and was large in the news in Kaohsiung this year with calls for clean air, the government laying on free public transport to encourage people to leave their fuel gas-guzzling vehicles at home and schools saying that no sports classes will be held on bad air days. Yeah, very much so. It probably, uh, if you want to take any story of the year, it definitely would uh, have had the most headlines. And it really started back in February when there was a rally on the 19th. Several thousand people uh, took to the streets in Kaohsiung and just demanded that things get better. But then as the year progressed, uh, they really didn't. Uh, we had a few clear weeks during the summer months, but then it almost uh, immediately returned to the, the haze. And it just it's, it's evident to everyone who lives down here that things are getting worse. And during the first rally, we heard from uh, Jai Mayor Tu Xingzhou, who blamed China, essentially, and we heard from others who uh, offered other excuses. But people just seemed to uh, demand action and didn't get it. So then just uh, last week, uh, last Sunday, there was another rally with another 3,000 people demonstrating down here for the same thing. So, yes, very much so. The air issue is uh, uh, something, I mean, we, we literally can see the city just disappear uh, from view, which is just something that uh, is just too visual, right? So the government has done this free until February scheme where during rush hours you can use the MRT and then certain buses and they say that it has added a certain percentage to the amount of people using public transport but obviously it's not enough. The city however wants to point out that they feel they've done a good job increasing public transport as in this year they say bus use was up about 8% uh, light rail up, of course, uh, because it wasn't working beforehand. MRT up by 20-something percent. Uh, but they also noted road passenger transport increased by 33 percent. So it's kind of balancing itself out, but not getting better. But, of course, uh, transport is not the only thing that causes air pollution. The uh, refineries and all the other things we have down here, heavy industry, is a big issue. So um, one person suggested that the EPA be relocated down here to southern Taiwan so they can see exactly how bad it is, and that's something I sort of support. But uh, the EPA does say they are gradually going to increase fines and tariffs on various polluters. And they're going to follow certain elements of Hong Kong's air policies, which are working in their opinion. Uh, there's several proposals out there that will take until like 2020 or 2023. So, again, for a lot of us who live here, it's frustrating that we don't 
feel that there's something that can be done faster. So it really has been uh, on all of our <laughs> lungs for this entire year, and it's an issue that I expect to continue uh, to be a major issue as we go into election campaigns in this new year. But of course, one thing the government also did this year in Kaohsiung was hold an eco-friendly transport event, and apparently it closed down the Hama Shin area to fuel vehicles. And electric buses, of course, were showcased in an attempt by the government there to promote green transport amid all this air pollution. Yeah, um, it happened over the month of October, and uh, there there were negative and, uh, negatives and positives, let's put it that way. I mean, I was there for most of the festival. I uh, interviewed a lot of people. I was able to go down and check out the exhibits, and uh, I got to see a lot of it. And on the negative side, the whole no-engine thing died about five minutes after it started, and there was very little enforcement of that idea, which was sort of like the fundamental original idea of what they wanted to do, like close off a certain area to traffic. But it really lasted maximum a week or so. So that was unfortunate to see. Um, but on the positive side, there was a lot of interesting ideas that were exchanged. Uh, there was a lot of stuff to see. There were a lot of uh, ideas that gave, in my opinion, they gave Taiwan inventors or Taiwanese uh, developers ideas that they can sort of modify and adapt to use in uh, the various cities of Taiwan or Kaohsiung. So we could be seeing at least some inspiration that came out of that month even if perhaps uh, we were a little bit negligent in the whole motor thing. And I believe you talked to some of the foreign people at this event who were also pushing for gr- their ideas of green transportation and other methods. Yeah, it was, it was a very international uh, event. There were many countries there. Uh, the Dutch delegation in particular was able to offer some very, uh, I would say, common sense sort of solutions for cities as they try to attempt to move towards uh, maybe more biking. And it, it's a bit of a hard sell here in Kaohsiung, not only the air pollution, but in the summer we're getting, you know, 36, 37 degrees up there. So trying to get, get people to bike. But some of the stuff that they suggested made sense. And uh, with the new train station coming into use uh, in uh, August of next year, it was going to, Kaohsiung is going to be reborn in a very interesting way. That whole train station area will be a big green park as the entire train stations and MRTs and everything is all moved underground, much like Taipei. So biking, there's going to be new trails that will run along the train station, old train lines that are going to be moved underground. So there were ideas that were put forward by uh, some foreign exhibitors and uh, other various ideas. There was even, you know, basic common sense ideas that have been around for a while, like painting roofs white and adding more greenery and stuff. And uh, you could tell that some of these things will be implemented. So uh, that's good. You know, those were the positives. Right. And, of course, the year is going out with speculation over who will replace Mayor Chen Ju at the end of next year when, of course, we have the local elections. And, of course, the local election fever, to call it fever, kicked off about three weeks ago in Kaohsiung. So who's going to replace Chen Ju? Right. Uh, This is a really big deal because she's been mayor for 12 years and uh, it's you know, not an exaggeration to say that she's become an icon of the city. There's literally a cartoon character of her that's uh, issued with uh, press releases and on various government documents. And, you know, she's got a little doll for sale at the city hall and various other places. So she is uh, quite possibly, if not definitely, the most popular mayor that Kaohsiung's had, although she has seen some of her support slip as she's uh, entered the lame duck phase here. So, uh, as you are aware, Southern Taiwan has a very uh, clear stronghold for the uh, DPP, 
And whatever candidate that party nominates is almost guaranteed to win the general election, as uh, that's what we've seen here for uh, a considerable period of time already. So it's down to five candidates for the position, and out of those five, there's probably only three that have uh, a chance at all. One of them was Guan Biling, who was a favorite of uh, the former president of Li Denghui, but in a tell-all sort of book memoir that uh, the mayor Chenju of Kaohsiung released recently, she was quite critical of her and also laid a little bit into the other big candidate, Chen Shi Mai, whose father recently got out of jail uh, related to some sort of scandal during the uh, Chen Shui-bian administration. So Chen Shi Mai was a former deputy mayor, and he served as mayor of Kaohsiung uh, after Xie Tangting left. He served for one year as mayor, and he's hoping to replace uh, mayor Chen. He is the one that people who uh, are politically inclined to do so are putting sort of, you know, bet money on. Uh, the dark horse candidate would be a legislator who's 44 years old, uh, Zhao Tianling. He represents the 7th District of Kaohsiung. And he could end up being a consensus candidate. And then, of course, there's the favorite that uh, is at least alleged to be the favorite of the mayor, Chen Zhu. That would be Liu Sifang. She's a longtime legislator. But it remains to be seen whether people uh, want to follow the 12-year reign of a female mayor with another single woman, or if they're looking for a younger person, or if they want to go with uh, the sort of, you know, uh, tried and uh, safe candidate Chen Chi Mai. So it's really still up in the air. And every time we get polls, we see sort of uh, radically different stuff. But the last poll we got, uh, the legislator Zhao was in first place. So this is an internal issue for the DPP, of course. They're going to choose their candidate based on three independent telephone polls that they do. Local DPP members in Kaohsiung are not allowed to vote, actually, on the candidates. It's uh, chosen by uh, three uh, poll companies that call everyone, regardless of party affiliation. So uh, when I interviewed the DPP recently, they uh, pointed to that as a measure of how democratic their process of picking a nominee is. So uh, that's their, their uh, feeling on it. So it remains to be seen in March when those calls are actually made and the tallies are uh, counted up, which one of these people is the winner. But uh, like I said, if you were a pundit right now, the money would be on the former deputy mayor and then uh, short-serving mayor Chen Chi Mai. But again, um, it's up in the air. And that was the show for this week here on Taiwan This Week. In fact, that was the show for the rest of this year. And I've been joined in the studio today by Ross Feingold with help on the telephone from Donovan Smith and Michael Smith in Taichung and Kaohsiung, respectively. Thank you for tuning in to this week's edition of Taiwan This Week here on ICRT with me, Gavin Phipps. And don't forget to check out Taiwan This Week podcasts on iTunes and Android podcast apps where you can get access to all our previous shows. Tune in again next Friday evening at 8.30 for another informative look at the top stories of the week with Taiwan This Week. And don't forget to also check out our podcast on our website, icrt.com.tw. Now keep it here for more music and news only on ICRT FM 100.